Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's great to be here on this Sunday and just to see our two church families coming together and worship like this. I, I think it's so easy oftentimes to become so narrowly focused on our individual congregations and think that that's the entire kingdom of God and to, to not always recognize that God is doing so much more uh, beyond our local church than often we acknowledge or understand. Why don't we begin with a word of prayer and we will um, look into the word of God this morning. Father, we are so thankful to be together with our brothers and sisters from uh, one another's church to be able to have our eyes open to see your great family and your uh, great love for uh, all the peoples of the world. We even think about what's happening there in Flagstaff and the work you're doing among Native Americans. And we just really ask that through this worship service, uh, you alone will be glorified, that all hearts will be drawn together um, under... Uh, the work of one spirit, one baptism, one work that you're doing in this world, that we would just be a part of that work and understand what our role is, what our calling is in all of that. And so open our eyes to see that and recognize that, even in this moment as we turn to you. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start the message this morning with... um, a question that may seem kind of silly at first, but um, what if I were to ask you just simply to give a definition? What, what is work? What is work? What would a, a dictionary definition of work be? And, and, and what I would actually offer to you is that it's pretty hard to define work. Um, If I could frame it in a slightly different way, we could ask this question. What is the difference between work and play? And again, the answer seems rather obvious at an instinctive level. But if I were to really challenge you, press you, to tell me what is the essential distinction between work and play, it actually turns out to be a lot more difficult question than at first appearances. Is it the issue of pleasure or enjoyment or fun? Is that the key distinction between work and play? In other words, by definition, is play something that is fun and work something that is unpleasant or at least tolerable? The problem with trying to distinguish work and play based on the pleasure principle is that some people find great enjoyment in the work that they do, don't they? Just picture the exhilaration of a surgeon using her skills in a life-saving operation or a NASA engineer excitedly monitoring a satellite or a rover that they've launched into space or the joy that a teacher may feel in helping a student grasp a new concept and take their next steps in their education. So the problem is we can actually enjoy our work. We also know that the opposite is true too, don't we? Is that sometimes 
play can start to feel more like toil than pleasure. I remember back when I was a sophomore in college at the U of I, Tetris had just came out on the market. And within that semester, it was installed on every single computer in every computer lab on campus. Everyone was playing it, and I quickly became addicted. I logged countless hours playing beyond the point of anything that could be called enjoyment. (laughs) I started feeling like a a line worker in a factory. The pieces just keep coming down, you know, and somebody's got to put them in the right spot. (laughs) Back when I used to play first-person shooters, before I destroyed my wrist playing them (laughs) with carpal tunnel syndrome, um, I used to play this game called Call of Duty. And I became obsessed with earning what were called these diamond camouflage skins for these guns. And if any of you play this game, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've got to complete these ridiculously difficult tasks to earn these little prizes in this game. And I had to get them for every single gun. And it took months of grueling, painful commitment. But I finally did it. And I find that's true of almost every video game that I get sucked into, is that there is always a tipping point where it no longer feels like fun, but it starts feeling like work. And so I would argue that pleasure or enjoyment can't be the key difference between work and play. Well, then some people have argued, well, maybe what distinguishes the two is the issue of livelihood. In other words, we get paid to work, but you don't get paid to play. That also becomes very problematic. What are we to say about all of the stay-at-home moms and dads who work tirelessly to maintain a home and raise children, but because they don't receive any direct financial compensation for their efforts, would we say that they're not really working? Or what about all the volunteer service for nonprofits and for the church? Everyone that set up this place for worship, they didn't get paid. Does that mean there was no work done? I think people would be very offended if that was the view. We could go on and on like this, but I think you get the point. It's not as easy as it first appears to try to make a distinction between work and play. What makes work work? And play, play. Well, maybe we could offer a solution like this. Maybe the key distinction looks like this. Unlike play, work is done for the purpose of achieving a goal outside of the activity itself. Okay? Work has a purpose outside of the actual activity itself. And I know that's kind of confusing, so let me see if I can kind of illustrate it like this. When I play tennis, I play it simply for the enjoyment of the game itself, so long as I'm not a professional tennis player, right? When I play a game of cards with friends, it's simply because I want a fun evening with my friends playing cards. When I paint a picture, I do so for the enjoyment of exercising my artistic talents, and the relaxation that it may provide. In other words, play does not require any greater justification or explanation for its purpose of being than for the activity itself. 
But when I work, it's different. Whether it's mowing the lawn or raising children or working for an internet startup, the goal of that activity extends beyond those tasks themselves. Whether it's about maintaining a presentable home in the neighborhood or nurturing our children so that they could succeed as adults or designing the next great search engine. You know, these are goals that exist outside the activity themselves. So by defining work in this way, it draws us to one of the most important questions that we can ask about work as a Christian. As Christians, why do we work? In other words, if we define work as having a goal outside the activity itself, then what is that goal in the lens of faith? And I would argue this. I believe our ultimate goal as Christians is to worship God through our work, glorifying and representing him in his creation. That would be the ultimate end of what we could define as Christian work. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, frames it like this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. What this passage in Genesis is saying is that as God's image bearers, God grants to us the authority and the responsibility over all of his creation. In theological terms, this is known as the cultural mandate. And that term image in Hebrew is used in a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. One of the ways that it's used is to describe a statue. It's called an image. Another way is to describe an image is to, it's referred to as a seal or a signet ring used to make a seal on any official royal document. Regardless of which metaphor that we use, I think the end result is the same, is that that statue or that seal represents the authority of the person that is the owner of it. Ancient kings in the ancient days used to erect statues in the territories that they conquered. They would often put them in major highways. And the reason why they did this is because they wanted every one of their conquered subjects as they walked by that statue to be reminded You are under new leadership. This is the king that you now bow before. I would argue that in that same way, we as the image bearers of God play that same function in God's creation. Is that God has called us to represent him, to his creation, and declare the authority of God over all things by how we do our work in his creation. Earning wages is a part of working. Seeking personal fulfillment by using our gifts and our talents is part of working. But these cannot, for the Christian, 
be the ultimate ends of why we work. Because we have a higher calling in the work that we do as Christians. Our careers, the things that we do must be primarily understood as God desiring to exert his lordship over all creation through the work that we do. Nancy Piercy says it like this. The lesson of the cultural mandate is that our sense of fulfillment depends on engaging in creative, constructive work. The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth. Not just to save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself as agents of his common grace. It is out of this view of work that we get the Christian understanding of career as vocation. Or calling. This was absolutely transformative to me when I understood this. To think that I am an image bearer of God. And what that means is that any place where I am placed, whether it's in the marketplace or in the church or in my family, God basically sees my function in that place as representing his leadership in that community. And what he wants to accomplish through me in that setting. In that place. I want to apply this in the most extreme situation here for a minute to try to flesh this out a little as to what this actually looks like. And I want to do it by Paul's teaching to slaves in the New Testament times, in the book of Ephesians. Now, I don't believe that slavery is condoned in the Bible. And I think there's many biblical supports we could give for that. But it's kind of beyond the scope. And so I apologize if, if that's the part that's stumbling you. Please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk you through that. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 to 8, look at what Paul says to slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart. Just as you would obey Christ, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Now, I would argue that the gospel would plant the seeds of upturning the institution of slavery globally. But in this particular moment when slavery was an entity that just, it was a reality that the church had to deal with, what Paul says here is, I think, really instructive to us. Because he tells Christian slaves, um, there is a deeper purpose to your work, even as a slave, than what you may realize. It's hard to imagine a more extreme situation in which you would say, you got to get out of that. 
You got to do everything to get out from under that situation. And yet what Paul is saying is this, that even in as messed up and broken situation as slavery, somehow in that place, there is another layer that is open to us through the eyes of faith. If you look at verse 6, it says, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. In other words, he tells slaves, don't just do the bare minimum. Don't just work hard when your master is watching you. But Paul says, perform your work with passion and with integrity. All the time. And the motivation is clear when you look at the parallel passage in his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 3, verse 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. In other words, what Paul is saying is the motivation behind every work, no matter the nature of it, is the fact that we are not merely serving other human beings. but We are serving God and his kingdom. And that even in as difficult a situation as slavery, God can accomplish his redemptive purposes by what you do in your life in that setting. In other words, he tells them, God sees everything that you do, and your master, your employer, may never acknowledge what you do. But you are not working toward that reward ultimately. You are working for the reward of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brother, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'm telling you, without this eternal perspective, we as Christians will live no differently when it comes to our work than the world. We will fight and claw for always the next step up in career advancement. We will gripe and grumble and gossip like all the other workers do in our workplace when things are not going well or when we're angry at our boss. And we will constantly be thinking about how can I improve my situation? How can I improve my lot? How can I get into a better company? How can I have a a better payout of all of this? And Listen, there may be seasons in our life where we have to try to figure out a better situation in our employment. But what I'm going to argue is that always in whatever situation we face, we have to believe that God has an agenda to accomplish in that place, difficult as it may be, as unbearable as your coworkers may be, as horrible as the office politics may be, as as, unbearable as the work may seem at times, the message that is found repeatedly in the New Testament is that you are serving the Lord. And so have the eyes of faith to see what God's agenda is for you in that season. It's interesting, when when I counsel a lot of Christians, I feel like we exhibit the same values of the world. We're just trying to get ahead. We're just trying to advance ourselves. We're just trying to get to a place where things are easier, more comfortable for me, where I could have more pleasant coworkers and on and on. And I, I sometimes worry that we're missing the big picture here. What it is that God is doing in us by placing us in that place as his image bearers to represent him in that place. I wasn't always a pastor. 
In a previous life, I was a medical doctor. And when I began my medical practice, I joined one of the larger primary care groups in the Chicagoland area. And when I did that, it was very quick to me what a toxic environment I had fallen into. All of the senior partners in this group, I realized very quickly, were fairly abusive to the junior partners who were not yet owners in the practice. And one of the first ways it became clear was all of us were required to do twice as many call nights as the senior partners. And these calls were brutal. You, you did not sleep a wink when you were on call in this group because you were covering for three different hospitals and 30 different physicians. <laughs> you were taking all of those calls. And the honest-to-God truth is that I was growing embittered in my heart. And <laughs> there were five of us junior doctors that were hired, and I was the most vocal in the business meetings. <laughs> I was always raising a stink and always getting mad. at the, everyone, No one else was standing up, so I felt like I was the representative, you know, the ombudsman for the junior doctors. And I was sitting there just going, this is not fair, this is not right. Somewhere in that process, I began to really wrestle with all of the anger and all the bitterness that was growing in my heart. And I realized, I don't think I'm glorifying God at all through any of this. And God began to do a real work in my heart to say, what do you think, Steve, is your purpose here in this practice? What do you think is God's agenda for you here? And the more I began to wrestle with that question, God began to transform my heart and my attitude. And I began to see it in an entirely different way. I began to pray for my patients, which sadly enough, though I was a seminary student at the time, I really wasn't doing because I was so busy. Why? Because they were double booking me. Whenever one of the senior partners didn't want to see a patient, he went into the computer and put it into my schedule. So I was often seeing a patient every five minutes is the way how often my office hours were being booked. But even in the midst of that busyness, I said, I need to represent Christ to these patients. And so I began to pray for them. And then I began to take the next step of praying with them. And that was transformative to ask the first patient of mine, can I pray for you? And then I began to try to witness to my nursing staff that I was in the office with. So uncomfortable. These were all middle-aged women that were about 20 years older than me. And all the doctors ate in their offices. That was the work culture there. But I decided I would eat in the employee lounge. First time I went in there, they didn't want me there. They all stopped their talking, and they were like just staring, going, what's Dr. Lee doing here? (laughs) One of them even came up to me and said, "Uh, Dr. Lee, I think you're in the wrong place, you know? (laughs) Doctors eat in their offices. I said, I know, but I just wanted to eat with you. For a couple weeks, I had nothing to say to these women. All the stuff they talk, were talking about, I don't know, n- needlework and yarn and matlock and <laughs> stuff that I'm not interested in at all. But I persevered, I persisted, and I kept staying in that lounge. And eventually they actually sat with me and began to talk with me And we began to share our lives with one another. 
probably the hardest thing for me to do was to submit with a joyful spirit under that abuse that I feel like we were all suffering from as junior doctors. But God even did a work like that in my heart to really say, this is, <laughs> this is not my place to try to fix all this by raising the biggest stink I can. And so I just submitted to that and just try to be a witness even to these senior partners, try to share Christ with them. The work conditions really never changed until the day I left that practice. But I saw God do a transforming work, not only in my heart, but by the end of those four years of medical practice, I really felt like I could say with a clear conscience, this place has become a place of worship for me. I am meeting God in this place. And God is using my medical practice to touch people's lives. I'm going to guess that many of you here are in some pretty tough situations at work. Maybe you feel like there are just injustices being done against you. Maybe there's a lot of office politicking. Maybe you just feel like you're in a dead-end job and it just feels like drudgery. But can I offer you a perspective of faith that maybe even in that place, God has a glorious, redemptive purpose for your life and the work that you're doing. Let me end with this. I shared this some years back with my church, but I think most of you are familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien. For many years, he struggled with his writing. As many of you know, Tolkien is the author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, one of the most popular fantasy novel series ever written. And he was also an English professor at the University of Oxford. And Tolkien had been at work on these Lord of the Ring manuscripts for decades. And he reached the point in his project where the work had become so enormous and so complicated that he worried that it would never be finished. As a perfectionist, he became obsessively consumed with even the smallest details of this Middle-earth world that he had created, that he could not move forward in his writing. On top of that, World War II began in the midst of this project. And so it was during this season of despair that Tolkien wrote this interesting short story that he entitled, Leaf by Niggle. That word niggle means to fiddle at something in an ineffective way, to spend time on petty details. And this is how the story of Niggle basically went. Niggle is a painter who must go on a long journey. A journey that he doesn't want to take, but he cannot avoid. But before Niggle goes on this journey, he is determined to paint a picture of an image that has captured his imagination. And it's the image of a magnificent tree with a backdrop of this sprawling forest with snow-tipped mountains. And caught up in that vision of this painting, Niggle sets up this enormous canvas on which he will create this masterpiece. It's so large that he needs a ladder to climb to the tops of it. And so with this enormous canvas laid out, he sets about to work on the painting. But as time passes, he realizes he is making almost no progress at all. 
The first problem that Nichols discovers is that he is a much better painter of leaves than he is of trees. And so he would obsess over every little detail of a single leaf. So that no matter how long he worked, he barely registered any progress with his painting. The second problem with Nigel was this, that he had a very kind heart and was constantly distracted by the needs of his neighbors around him. And so on one cold, wet night, one of his neighbors asks Nigel to fetch the doctor for his ailing wife. And as a result of that errand, Nigel comes down with a fever. And Nigel realizes as he gets sicker and sicker that his time is almost over. And so in his sickness, he frantically works to finish his masterpiece, but it's not long before the driver comes to pick him up on a journey that he has been avoiding for years. And realizing that he has no choice, he must go with his driver, Nigel bursts into tears, crying, it's not even finished. I think it's pretty obvious to all of us here that the journey that Nigel has been avoiding is the journey, journey of death. Sometime later, the tenants, new tenants would come to occupy Nigel's abandoned home. And the single surviving relic from Nigel's masterpiece is this tiny strip of canvas on which is a single leaf that Nigel painted. And so they put that canvas in the museum where it's hung with the title Leaf by Niggle <laughs> in a corner of the museum where almost nobody sees it. But the story doesn't end there. Niggle himself is on a train headed to heaven. And during the train, he hears two voices speaking to him, arguing with one another. And the first voice says to Nigel, you have wasted your entire life. You have accomplished nothing. But the second voice defends Nigel. And he says, you have lived your entire life sacrificing for others. It was a worthy life. And when the train finally arrives at the outskirts of heaven, what Nigel sees is this majestic tree before him. It's his tree that he has been trying to paint all of his life. Commenting on this story, Tim Keller writes this. Those of us who tend to be overly perfectionistic and methodical, like Tolkien himself, can identify strongly with the character of Nigel. But really, everyone is Nigel. Everyone imagines accomplishing things. And everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten. And everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun. And no one will e even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is God.
If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and if this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. Whatever your work, you need to know this. There really is a tree. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God. There is a future healed world that he will bring about. And your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will be only partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, the whole tree that you seek, the beauty, harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you won't be despondent because you can get only a leaf or two out in this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. You will not be puffed up by success or devastated by setbacks. Let's pray. As I close in prayer, I just want to read the final, uh, as a final verse what I just read to you earlier, 1 Corinthians 15.58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I've been recently talking with this um, housewife who gave up a career to raise her children. And as I was talking with her, she was expressing so much angst and discouragement because as the years pass and her resume sits idle, she's realizing she's basically working herself out of the job market and is not sure she'll be marketable when her kids are old enough for her to return to work. And she was asking me, did I make the biggest mistake of my life doing this? I don't know if some of you stay-at-home moms feel that way, especially on worst days when you feel like your kids are not responding despite all of the efforts you've made pouring into them. And all they seem is rebellious and angry at you, and you say, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Some of you may be stuck in incredibly difficult work situations and you're just trying to get out from under it and saying, what's the point of all this? Or for some of you, you're actually experiencing quite a lot of success and you're just going from victory after victory, but it's become an idol for you. And you've defined yourself by your work and it gives you your sense of worth. In all of this, I think the gospel has something to speak into us to say, you know, What this is ultimately all about is we as the image bearers of God representing his agenda in every sphere that he calls us to work as worship for the only God that is worthy of it. And as we attempt that life, as J.R.R. Tolkien confessed in his own autobiographical story of Nigel, he says, you know, man, sometimes you want to paint that magnificent canvas And it feels like all you ended up with your life is painting one leaf. But as Tim Keller says, that tree exists somewhere because God exists. And one day, what God promises us is that your work will not be in vain because the Lord has seen it all. 
and will reward you accordingly. God, put that as a vision that would capture each one of our hearts, I pray. Work as worship. We, as your image bearers, who will stand in the most broken places and declare that Christ is king over that place. Let us be the hands of healing where there is so many wounds. Let us be the voice of encouragement when everyone wants to give up. Let us be the ones who will represent your heart in the darkest places. Lord, we do not have the strength to rise up to that calling. And so we ask for your empowerment to be all that you have called us to be. And at the end of it all, when we have all just painted our leaf, let us have that vision of that magnificent tree that awaits all of us because of what Christ and Christ alone is able to do for us. For we pray all of this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.